Welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm talking with Anne Creamer. Anne has been at the forefront of of the media world from the beginning of her career. In the late 1970s and into the 80s, she distributed and co-produced Sesame Street around the world. A few years later, she helped launch Spy magazine, which was described as the most influential magazine of the 1980s. And in the 90s, she was the worldwide creative director for Nickelodeon, where she created and launched Nickelodeon magazine. Uh, She then transitioned into a completely new career and as a journalist and a columnist for the cutting edge business magazine Fast Company. She's the author of Going Grey and It's Always Personal, which are both thought-provoking explorations of what's simmering beneath the surface in our culture and particularly in our work lives. And her latest book, Risk Reward, discusses why and how we need to embrace risk. Thanks so much for being here, Anne. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, taking things right back, you, you you were raised to believe that if you put your mind to something, you could tackle absolutely anything. How instrumental do you feel that belief was in helping you to achieve, basically, yeah, everything you have? I think it was a huge uh, contributor, and I think a large part of it came from the fact that um, I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Kansas City, and my father was from a very small town in the ge- you know, geographic center of the United States, Downs, Kansas, and he served in World War II, He was shot through the head in the war and recovered and came back fundamentally believing um, that he'd been given this sort of second chance in life. And he became, he was a lawyer, but, um, and my mother was a stay-at-home mother. So I had a kind of typical Leave it to Beaver 1950s um, upbringing in the suburban Midwest. But something about, I think, that experience for him um, became instilled in me that um, life is precious, life is short, um, you know, get out and do the things you want to do because you never really know um, what might happen the next day. God, I can't kind of shot in the head and survived. That's, that's yeah. crazy. Went through his cheek and out the back of his head. And really his only damage was he was deaf in his left ear. It was astonishing. Huh. That's amazing. So, God, so... Yeah, I mean, you you would feel like God. This is you know got you know got this this other chance. I mean, that that's amazing. So that was growing up. I mean, that must be quite an inspirational environment to be brought up in. I imagine believing that yeah, we can do stuff. You know, it was, and it's interesting. I have only an older sister, and so we were women. There was never a sense of uh, gender bias in our household um, at all, and so I I think it was just. If you work hard uh, and kind of have the right attitude and mindset, then you can explore and do the things that you, that you want to do. Um, I'm just lucky. One thing which I, I saw, I read it on, um, I think it was on your website, was um, about this study, which was, it was, it was quite, um, yeah, it was, it was, well, there's loads of great studies, but the 2014, it was a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research, which discovered that actually job hopping from uh, like job to job actually correlates with higher incomes because people have found better matches. They found their true calling, their why. So because <laughs> often we're seen as like, you know, jumping ship and trying out lots of things. Often it's seen as necessarily like a bad thing. But this research actually turns out on its head. Is that right? It is completely right. And in, in, the, in my book, Risk Reward, what I realized is that that sense of a kind of a vertical trajectory in your life is a very 20th century idea that I think is mired really truly in just this kind of one tiny uh, window of time. 
you know, you would go and you would work in any industry, banking, publishing, you know, academia, whatever it is, and start and stay by and large within that industry. And if you changed jobs, you wouldn't change into a completely different field. You would actually change into, you know, you might move into a, the same field, but, you know, kind of move one step up the rung. And so there was this kind of bias against experimentation. And, you know, I was one of those weirdo experimenters. I mean, I, I don't even put half the things I've done on my website because it would, it, it would be, you know, <laughs> um, so I used to feel kind of, well, why don't I know my true meaning? Why don't I know my true calling in life? And I think there were different things at different stages of our life. Like who I was at 22 is a very different thing from who I am, you know, now at almost 60. And I think having a mindset that allows you to kind of fluidly respond to life circumstances, you know, I, I might want to work at Etsy. Well, Etsy didn't exist ages ago, right? I mean, I couldn't have said as a college graduate, I'm going to work at Etsy, you know, because it didn't exist. You have to have this kind of experimental mindset and be willing to kind of move laterally, uh, you know, zigging and zagging to find the things that work for you. I, I, so I loved, I loved the quote. Um, I love the quote by um, Tom Peters um, when he said, um, uh, I've said and mean with all my heart, I've only learned one thing for sure in 48 years. Whoever tries the most stuff wins. I love that idea. Just, just whoever tries the most stuff, just, just have that whole really well-rounded try everything. I think it's amazing. Well, I think it, I actually think it pans out. I mean, in my research, I conducted three big national surveys with J. Walter Thompson, trying to kind of get a 100,000-foot snapshot of what people were feeling about their working lives. And the group of people that I call the pioneers um, were the most economically, you know, financially successful. They made, you know, 17% more money than everybody else. But what was really interesting about them, they did several things that were different. They put more chips on the table. They did take more risks. Uh, you know, the huge majority of them didn't think that they would be in the same job five years from now. Almost everybody else thought that they would be in the same job, you know, for the next 10 years. But they were different. They were the most ethnically diverse group of people. Um, they were the people that, you know, had the greatest percentage that only went to high school. So they weren't, as you might guess, the most well-educated. They didn't have the most degrees. They had a kind of open mindset, I would say. And they did um, th two other things. They answered the question, sometimes um, I use analysis and logic to make my decisions equally with I trust my gut. And I think we've lost the respect of our guts um, when it comes to decision-making. I also think kind of the 21st century working paradigm was data is the, you know, holy grail. Analysis is important. You know, this is, a, this is an objective industry, you know, whatever the industry might be. We do measurables and, you know, outputs and inputs and throughputs, and there's no room for... Um, our emotional sort of sense of the direction that things are going. And I think that these pioneers value that. And in fact, you know, in my book about emotion in the workplace, I found that you can't even figure out what you want to have for breakfast. You can't figure out what you want to wear to work, let alone identify a significant business opportunity or uh, a way to streamline some operation in your company without using your emotion. 
that people who have that part of their brain damaged for some reason, um, you know, you say, you'll say to them, well, would you like cereal for breakfast? And they'll have to, like, they'll just look at boxes and read boxes, and they won't be able to figure out, well, I'm really more in the mood for grape nuts than I am for, you know, granola. <laughs> so, so these pioneers have reclaimed that on a very real level. And I think it lets them know when to kind of dive into something new or when to get out of something if it's not going the right direction. You know, one of the big true truisms of starting a business or doing anything is when do you get out? You know, do you, do you it's the sunk cost fallacy. Do you stay in something to the bitter end or do you take the lessons you've learned and, you know, move, move on? Yeah. You know, and then the last thing that these pioneers did really successfully was they answered, sometimes I just do nothing at all. And almost everybody else said they work all the time. And I profoundly believe that you can't have new creative input in any aspect of your life, you know, output, unless you've had sort of um, fulfilling input. And that could be for you, I don't, you know, for me it would be, you know, going out for a walk in the park or, you know, painting or gardening or, you know, hanging out with my, whatever it is. Something that kind of nourishes your emotional, spiritual well. And the most successful people by the measurable benchmark of, you know, money, the holy grail in America, respected that. So it's, it's just, it's like, it's like, duh, on so many levels, you know. Think about things, the best risk-taking is kind of analysis and then trial and error, uh, but trust your gut. I love that. And you, you, you mentioned uh, it's, it's the art of taking risks. It's an art, isn't it? It is an art because, you know, you can dive in too soon. I started a video production company in the, uh, like, 1997, right before really broadband streaming of any sort happened. I wanted to create kind of book videos and do for book videos what, you know, music videos had done for the, uh, you know, do for the book industry what music videos had done for the music industry. But I was just, I was actually just, I was at the wrong, it was just a little ahead of the curve. I was fortunate to have Barnes and Noble sort of, you know, working with me on it. I was able to kind of sell the company to them and get out gracefully without, you know, completely losing my shirt. But, uh, so that, you know, and, and Spy, the magazine I do with my husband, perfect, perfect thing for the kind of, uh, you know, mid to late 80s. Uh, it was before the internet, so the kinds of things that we did, sort of linking things in small type and all the kind of heavily researched stuff we did, I do believe presaged, you know, John Stewart and, you know, all sorts of, you know, Stephen Colbert, and you can tr- track DNA back in terms of some of that kind of humor that we did. But would it be a successful magazine today in the internet gawker kind of world? I don't think so. So timing is important. Yeah. And one one of the things about risks, because we're naturally um, sort of set up to sort of avoid risk, to like to be you know, risk averse, like, and so a lot of things you were saying, it's, it's not just about necessarily doing these huge, life changing, monumental, huge risks. It's just about practicing like regular risk taking. Is that correct? Like it, that's much more important. That regular, consistent. Yes, and doing things sort of that are not part of your everyday routine. I mean, I'm actually now trying to start a new company that's in the kind of decorative objects business and involving lampshades. And so I've been going to various lampshade manufacturers, you know, trying to explore 
how you do it, what the issues are, how do you print, where do you go? And, you know, you kind of feel like a fool. You you walk in, and, and particularly actually at my age on some level, I think some people can look at you and think, well, why are you doing this, you know? Um, but it, it each call I make, each conversation that I have leads me to someplace else and helps me kind of refine my idea. And most people are extremely generous with their time. You know, they'll... If you have a question and you are sincere and you're interested in, in, in indeed potentially perhaps a you know client or a partner in some capacity, they're willing to share their expertise with you. And um, I think that's something to remember and be refreshed by. You can't just – I do find it profoundly irritating when um, young people call me up and they'll say things like, well, I just love the media. How do you get a job in the media? And I'm like, well, um, media. Do you like children's media? Do you like – print do you like video do you like do you like you know do, do you want to be uh, an investigative journalist do you want to be a tv producer of reality shows do you want to be on the creative side the financial side you know it's like you have to have done work to kind of dissect to some degree where your entry point might be in something and then you can frame a great conversation if it's just this kind of abstract thing it, it's kind of hopeless to have um a meaningful conversation. Yeah, <laughs> you need a starting point at least. Yeah. Uh, and then another thing, on, on that research, you mentioned that um, huge um, uh, advertising agency. Over, I think, 2012, 13, and 14, you did this huge amount of research. And one of the, the staggering findings was that 50% of all Americans long to not just be in different jobs, but entirely different careers, like just different industries, like 50%. And that's a crazy statistic. Like, what... What's what's stopping what's stopping them? Well, I think people get it's a layer of things, and it depends on your life sort of thing. The two largest things that came out for people were a fear of starting over if you were sort of older. Again, that kind of how much have you invested in the current path you're going down? And if you're younger, it's a fear of failure. Now, you would think when Is you're that younger, ego? is that just a lot more ego based because you're worried about what? Like, I think there's some lack of like fluency with the skills and protocols of like what it takes to do work in a business environment you know i mean until you've actually worked you don't really have a necessarily an understanding of all the things that are entailed in um operations for instance or in management or in sales i mean there's just so many component parts i mean very few of us are fine artists just sitting in our studios painting. And even fine artists need ultimately to find gallery representation and to figure out how to get promotion and video, you know, media around their work or else they'll never sell anything. And, you know, even the one percenters, I think, are still interested probably in, in selling things. And so when you're younger, you haven't had j- just enough, you know, uh, miles on the tires, literally, to know some of those things. So it's it's terrifying to kind of think about it. But then there's, as you said, that we are kind of hardwired to protect ourselves, you know, to be risk averse. Um, you know, Daniel Kahneman, the you know genius Nobel Prize winning, you know, behavioral economist who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, writes a lot about you know, you would much rather hold on to something um, that's a known quantity. So, you know, uh, I, yes, you might be longing and thinking about starting your, um, you know, vegan um, bakery. But, and I actually interviewed a woman who had started her vegan bakery who had been, <laughs> who had been a lawyer. 
but and she she it took she sort of her story kind of talks about how you experiment your way into finding a business. She's now opening her third shop, so I mean she's been very successful. But um, you know it's 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 you have to kind of build the correct steps to do that. So we're risk averse. We are worried about jettisoning investments that we've made in terms of time and money and education and training to change our jobs. We're all terrified of looking like failures. Uh, we have ego. We have identity. We have partners. I mean, one of the interesting things to me that uh, I uncovered in my research and is something for somewhere else, like let's say you're in a, a long-term relationship with someone on average, each of you might be having 12, 14, 15 different jobs during the course of your lifetime. And if you stay together during that, that means 30 different negotiations you have to have with your partner if each of you is going to have these 15 different job inflection points. So let's say um, you've got a couple of kids and you've got a mortgage and you've got your car payments and you're still paying off some student debt and you say to your partner, gee whiz, you know, I'm going to go in there and quit my job tomorrow. Um, and I, I think I'm just going to take about six months off to, you know, travel and really figure out how I'm going <laughs> to this thing I'm doing. Are you good with that? Yeah, that's an interesting conversation you got to have. So it is, and you need to have clearly defined roles and responsibilities and sort of shared sort of understandings of who gets to experiment when and how. But the truth is we're all going to be in this situation because industries are just being destroyed uh, and jobs overnight. I mean, you know, I just read this week that the, they really do have, you know, kind of robot, um, you know, fact checkers now. So even, you know, you would think something that required sort of research and analysis and conversation to fact check. But no, you can just, so that's like a whole group of people whose jobs just got wiped out. And they're in the quote-unquote knowledge industry that was supposedly safe, somewhat protected from the manufacturing industry. So it's, you know, tenure is being destroyed in, you know, universities across the country. They're just using adjunct professors. They're no longer putting people into tenure positions because it's too expensive in terms of, you know, all the benefits. Oh, dear. Um, I, this, this is going to be a horrible – hold on. <laughs> It's more authentic. It's it's real. <laughs> it was my daughter, and I just hung up, picked it up, and hung up on her. <laughs> would, would you say that rather than you know thinking, oh, you know, times are changing, like oh, you know, woe is me, you know, actually, is it about adaption and actually being like spotting opportunities, and you know, rather than being upset that now a computer can take your job, just being constantly on the lookout, adapting, changing. That it's back to that zigzag that you're talking about. It is about to, back to that zigzag, and that's what becomes overwhelming for people because it, uh, back again to why why are why are we not taking steps to kind of stay ahead of the game? Um, you, you know, it's that there's too much choice. How do I even decide where do I go? What what what, what do I even think about? I mean, there's that wonderful book, The Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz's book, that really talks about how you know if you're if there are five jars of jelly on a shelf you can easily make the decision i want you know the raspberry you know jam if they're 30 you, you know you just look at oh i'm out of here <laughs> it's like why going into grocery stores in america is a nightmare you know you go down that cereal aisle that is you know miles of different sugary cereals and you just think there's uh, uh, i'm i'm leaving 
Whereas you, if you go into smaller stores throughout the rest of the world, there's like five choices. And then you can say, terrific, I'll have the bran, you know, flake. And, <laughs> and you leave. This is what's happening with the working world because so many, you know, you, you, every single new company is starting up with some interesting app and some interesting kind of algorithm and some interesting sort of way to do this. And even within, you know, established YouTubes and everything else, well, well how do you, what's your entry point? You know, what is the normal way to, you know, it used to be clear how you would kind of get jobs and interview. Even that's not clear. So you have to be, one of the most interesting kinds of pieces of research that I found is that um, you don't really usually get your next job by, through the people you work with. It's through a kind of loose association of people you maintain a regular contact with who come from a different, a variety of different sort of skill sets. So again, back to that filling your kind of, you know, spiritual, personal well, um, you know, uh, let's say I'm part of a knitting circle or, you know, quilting circle. Well, I might be in there with a woman who's a, you know, VP at a bank and another woman who's, you know, um, works at a university who's in you know recruitment or hr or you know there so there'll be a whole bunch of people who are coming from disparate professional backgrounds into this area and you'll be sitting around talking doing your thing whatever it is you know you could be having that at a course that you take on you know somewhere else but i think the physical sense doing something on lynda.com might not give you that same sort of sense of community and shared kind of conversation and then someone will say, oh, I heard about this thing, uh, you know, Anne, um, you know, my friend down the block is opening up this new thing, and I think she needs your skills. And that's how you get your next job. So you kind of are always talking and meeting and sort of seeing people within your community and in the broader landscape. And then at least, you know, um, if something drastic happens to you, you have a couple of ways to move immediately that could yield, you know, an income. Yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, there's, there's the, yeah, you said it, there's loose ties, the ones it's building up that network, people from, because they're from different industries and they're different backgrounds and nationalities and whatever, they'd have just completely different view. Like as in if, if you've been going to the same, living in the same area, doing the same type of job, there's nothing wrong with this, but you've, you've, that's your, that's your, your view, isn't it? And then yeah. somebody else can see it from almost like a, bird's eye point of view and actually see something which is blindly obvious to them but it's you know they can't you can't necessarily see it precisely we get tunnel vision or you know as carol dweck called it you know fixed mindsets <laughs> uh and, and and you kind of lose perspective i write in the book about what i call kind of elastic focus and you know it's what you learn if you ride horses and you know you you, you want to have soft eyes you want to kind of be able to sort of see what's happening around you a, a level of awareness is truly what it is and if all you're doing is looking down at your desk and trying to just get each task taken care of and out the door. You don't even have the you don't have the bandwidth, you don't have the perspective, you don't have anything to see that like even in your own company, maybe they're starting up a new, you know, uh, initiative that you, you would be really great for, but because you know, you're working till eight o'clock at night every night and you barely have time to breathe, uh, you don't even know about it or put your name into the hat to be considered. We're talking about taking risks. 
in sort of a business context, but do these like principles, are they universal? Is this, is this just as relevant in our personal life in, you know, this idea of yeah, risk taking or do you think it's in basically just in a business context? No, I think I think it works in. A, I mean, I my prism was look, looking at it from the work perspective, but I think it's equally true in a in a personal context. I mean, let's say you know you're single and you're dating, right? Um, all the same, you know, things are involved in that. You you are putting yourself out there. You're exposing yourself to failure. Um, you might have a notion of you know the perfect fit for you and. You're completely wrong. I mean, I met my husband on a blind date, you know, uh, November 4th, 1977, a million years ago. He was a sort of, you know, eggheady, nerdy, you know, humorist. <laughs> I was kind of a jock at the time. In the real world, you know, in an online dating situation, we would have never met. We would have never hit each other's, you know, criteria on some level. But obviously it worked. Here we are, you know, moving on to 40 years later. Uh, so I think just being just be willing to try something fresh and be willing to be surprised. Yeah. You, what, one thing you do is um, you've got this great thing called um, One Question where, you know, you, you've, you've interviewed a lot of like just amazing, inspiring people about like risk. Like, what are like? Is there any sort of truly memorable stories that really stuck with you from those ones? Um, no, I think there's a you know one very memorable one that was also very personal was my friend David Carr, who was a journalist at the New York Times who died last year. He he had been a um, crackhead in his life, and you think if you've reached the position of being a respected journalist at the New York Times, you would do everything in your power to keep that part of your past hidden and he decided to actually write a book a, a you know a memoir and he went back and reported on his entire life and it was a really innovative way in fact to do a memoir and you know he really put all of his dirty linen out there and you know at the end of the day his overlords at the new york times were like absolutely you know go for this and he said if you if the worst of you is already out there in the world then you can kind of face it with um, you know, energy and dignity on some level, even if it's this shabby, tawdry part of your past that you would be ashamed of most people knowing. You have to kind of own it and possess it and move past it. Now, few of us probably have that level of, you know, um, stuff in our past. But I think it's about self-knowledge. And I think almost every single important catalyst that comes in anyone's personal and or professional life is gaining um, insight into what is meaningful for them. All the changes, every single one of them I write about in the book, is of people who have taken that step towards um, knowing what's right for them and then acting on it. And it's the people who I think are the most vulnerable now, those 50% who want to change and don't know anything about where they allowed the world to act for them. It's quite yeah, and it's yeah, very very brave decision as well. And um, does that come back to sort of the, you sort of that intuition, listening to that sort of inner sort of guidance voice, and actually just yeah, just yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, but, it's getting off the hamster wheel for enough time to sort of say, is this really giving me what I need it to give me? 
And w- would you say you mentioned there like the the blind date meeting your husband? So that's pro- probably if it wasn't that one. Like, what would you say your best personal risk that you've ever taken was? Oh, you know, Legion starting this production company was big. Starting Spy with my husband. I mean. We were all in. We were in our late, you know, late twenties, early thirties. I got, pre- I had both my kids during that. That was our only source of income. Uh, we didn't even think about what it could do to our relationship. We just were like, just let's just do this. I mean, it could have, you know, it could be a recipe for disaster on so many levels. And yet it remains one of the greatest experiences of our lives, even though it was something that existed for eight years. You know, it, it came and it went, but doing it was a blast. Um, but t- it was a huge risk. No other income source. Everything, you know, all of it uh, together. That's awesome. Uh, what does a fulfilled life mean to you? For me, it means being able to um, make the decisions that I need to to make to fulfill my basic needs. And then to have the space and time to be with the people that I love. To, that's all it for me right now. And that is a normal, you know, Eric Erickson has his sort of, you know, seven stages of life. And when you enter into my chapter now, you know, turning 60 this year, it becomes, he called it generativity, uh, where you want to help other people and do other things. I think it's a different thing from when you're 20 trying to find identity and establish your sort of place in the world. My place in the world now is small and intimate and immediate, and that's truly, you know, if I can help make the world a better place in terms of the conversations going on in the American terms of race and class, I'll be happy to contribute. If I can help women feel better about aging and not changing their hair color and having plastic surgery, that's great. But that larger pulpit um, is less meaningful to me now on some level than the more local pulpit. Excellent. What's one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? Walk everywhere they go. Simple. Honestly, and from a business perspective, I find so many senior executives who they get into their, you know, driver's cars they go from a boardroom to the, you know, first class suite at the hotel, you know, at the airport to their, you know, fabulous hotel room back and forth. They're kind of their feet never touch the ground. And I and I believe that that forces that that causes them to lose touch with um, reality, with their customers, with what matters in people's lives, with solutions to make people's lives better, because they don't know what's hard in people's lives. Nothing's hard in their lives, right? You know, other than maybe getting stuck in a traffic jam or, you know, having to, you know, figure out how to acquire some company or handle something. But it's like, it's not the kind of existential struggle that so many people have. So I think get out, walk around, go into unfamiliar neighborhoods, find people uh, you don't know, but move, movement, movement, movement's key. Great. Are there any books or resources which have changed or had a big impact on you? Um, I quit my job at Sesame Street when I read William Kennedy's uh, Billy Felon's Greatest Game. He He's a, a beautiful writer and he had a trilogy about some down and out Albany people. And for the life of me today, I can't remember what it was, but I can remember very clearly, you know, it's a novel. It's not a, you know, practical guide to doing anything. <laughs> 
I can remember uh, reading it and thinking, oh, Billy Fallon was kind of this sad guy who was stuck in this miserable trajectory. And I remember thinking, got to this is it. Tomorrow I go in and that's the day I, you know, quit my job. I was doing way too much traveling and it was really taking a personal toll and I just hadn't summoned the courage to do it. And somehow that book was a huge catalyst. And then anything by Pico Iyer, who I'm blessed to say is a friend of mine uh, and he's one of the world's great, beautiful travel writers, but he wrote a beautiful book about the Dalai Lama. Uh, his father was kind of a guru also and um, he just published a book called The Art of Stillness. Very simple, but uh, he's, he's just a magnificent writer. Fantastic. I'll put them in the show notes. And last but not least... Delightful guest. I, I will do. I'd love to. Yeah. Amazing. And how can people stay in touch, find out more about you? Uh, go to my website, N-A-N-N-E-K-R-E-A-M-E-R.com. Amazing. And you, yeah, you've, it's got your blog on there and you like list amazing, like really interesting articles and stories. And so, um, yeah, you've got some cool, got a good little uh, inspirational videos. I like your, uh, inspirational section. So, um, good, good. and thank you so much for, for talking to me today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been, yeah, it's been awesome. Oh, great. Thank you, Duncan. I look forward to talking to you again. Catch you soon.